has a busy Thanksgiving week, Lin-Manuel Miranda. His feature directorial debut, Tick, Tick, Boom, is now available on Netflix, and he wrote all the songs in Disney's animated feature, Encanto. He is with us today as he heads for an EGOT on Crew Call. So during the pandemic, during your interviews, I'm thinking, oh, he's in post on In the Heights. He's cleaning it up. And then there's these two things. You've got Tick, Tick, Boom on Friday, and you've got Encanto on Wednesday. Has this been your entire pandemic, the balancing of these two projects? I mean, this is this is like gorgeous <laughs> and wonderful and crazy. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It has been the past two years. And, um, you know, I think God laughed at a lot of our plans last year. Um, and I, you know, there's another timeline in which uh, In the Heights came out in the summer of 20 and Vivo came out in the fall. And then this year I would have had um, Tick, Tick, Boom at some point earlier in the year and, and uh, Encanto here, but that's all nicely staggered and that's just not what happens. That's not what. And so I've been, um, oh, well, I've been writing uh, on Encanto for the past few years, um, but the, the bulk, the, the most important work has happened in this last year while I've been editing Tick, Tick, Boom. So with Tick, Tick, Boom, I'm gonna start there. You shot that before the pandemic or during? Shot eight days in March of 2020, and then the world shut down. I was oh. at Jonathan Larson's actual building where he lived at 508 Greenwich when the call came down from Netflix that they were ceasing production on everything. Um, and then we started back up again with safety protocols in place, and we shot from September through November uh, of last year. So the... I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go earlier. I like. I, I have so many things to ask you here. The the what a great project to start as your feature directorial debut. How did it all come about? Did did you always? I mean, you've always had a connection with Jonathan. However, did you walk it into Imagine and then Imagine took it to Netflix? How? What was the whole process? No, the credit really goes to my producer, Julie O. Um, Julie and I met back when, back in the lean years of Heights, when pre-Hamilton, you know, it just didn't have a home anywhere. I met her when she was a producer at another company. Um, I I'd always had this connection to Larson and I was lucky enough to play John in a production of Tick, Tick, Boom in 2014. Um, I, uh, I, I look back on it and it's like the point in my life where the roller coaster is just here. I was super pregnant with Hamilton, which was gonna start rehearsals four months later. My wife was super pregnant with our first child. My co-stars are Karen Olivo, who was my co-lead in Heights, and Leslie Odom Jr., who was my co-lead in my next show. Um, and um, I knew if I don't play it now, I'll, I'll be too old to play it. Um, I was 30 four years old. And Julie saw that production um, on her own. Uh, she, she bought a ticket and went and she had never seen it before. And she quietly went about getting the film rights. Um, I knew I wanted to direct movie musicals. They're my favorite thing. <laughs> and I wanted to make movies even before I fell in love with the theater. Um, and I was 
working on Mary Poppins Returns, which I said yes to so I could watch Rob Marshall direct a musical. Um, and I got an email towards the end of that process from Julie O saying, I've acquired the film rights to Tick, Tick, Boom. Are you interested in directing? And I said, I'm the only person, <laughs> I never responded to an email so fast in my life because Tick, Tick, Boom had been sitting in my heart since I was 21 years old and, and really inspired a lot of the writing I had done. Um, and so uh, I responded enormously quickly and then we kind of proceeded from there. She was, she was, she was working at Imagine uh, with uh, Brian and Ron. Yeah, I was I was thinking because of based on when you were born and and when no, he passed. he's exactly twenty years older than me. Um, yeah, so no, but I knew I knew the story of his untimely passing before I went and saw Rent on my seventeenth birthday. Um, it certainly made it more poignant, um, but at the same time, I was just knocked flat by Rent on my seventeenth birthday. It was the most contemporary New York show I had ever seen. The first show that felt like now that I had ever seen. Um, the most diverse cast I'd ever seen on a Broadway stage. Um, and it just felt in conversation with the world in this very real way. Um, you know, you have to remember, Course Line's a period piece by the time I'm, by 1997. And so is West Side Story, so is On the Town. There had been contemporary New York musicals, but none for me. Um, and it was the show that made me feel like, oh, I'm allowed to write a musical. You're allowed to write about your friends and your art and, and, and your fears and your hopes, because all of that um, is, is what you get from Rent. It really feels like homemade in the best way. Now, yours, this is, is absolutely gorgeous. And you have your In the Heights cinematographer, Alice Brooks, on this. Yeah. You have, I mean, the one thing I was noticing about in, in watching it is you're working with small sets. You're working with an apartment. You're working with an office or a diner. And you, every shot is sublimely meticulous and alive. And I and it's like you've taken what looks to be like a bare bones stage show and just blown it out. Tell me, did you did you guys plot every single shot in this movie? Because it feels, I mean, everything is just beautiful and just seems from the the files going out of you know his hands, you know, um, you know Mike's hands and. I'm just, I'm just curious, did you storyboard the entire thing? Did you take this and break it down? We storyboarded um, the major sequences. Uh, we storyboarded Sunday, we storyboarded swimming. Uh, we storyboarded the, the march from Michael's office all the way to the Delacorte uh, for uh, the song in the Delacorte, why? Um, and, um, but the, but then, you know, the other thing that we're dealing with is like, the spirit of Jonathan Larson, as expressed by Andrew Garfield, who has gone so deep and done so much research. Um, and, and it's interesting. I, I think I learned, you know, Rob Marshall is a really meticulous planner. That's a guy who previses, you know, everything and, and then also works with his actors to get the best out of them. That was a wonderful lesson to be on the receiving end uh, of that. Um, and John, John is a similar planner. He really works with his choreographers a lot. Um, but he also will pivot if the light is hitting something at a certain angle. He goes, whoa, 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 the magic is over here. Like 
everybody flipped the cameras around. Um, and I wanted to sort of be a mix of both of those things. Um, you know, there's the, the Sunday sequence has to unfold in a certain way um, because you wanted to just continually build and build the way the music builds. Um, but, and, and um, you know, there's there's effects involved with the swimming sequence. So you've got a previs because you got to know what you're shooting. But then uh, the swimming place is actually a great example. Um, I I'm fully aware it's my first movie, and I I I know what I know, and I know what I want to get. Um, but we had this incredibly skilled underwater camera operator, and once I got the shots that were in my head, I said, okay, what else is really cool that you've always wanted to do that I wouldn't think of because I don't live in the pool with a camera. <laughs> and he was like, well, and then some of the most stunning shots, you know, I think of that shot where he's diving over the camera and it goes upside down and follows him as it swims past us. That's my underwater camera operator pitching um, and me going, yeah, let's see what that looks like. Um, so, so building in time for, for the best idea in the room to win is something I learned from Tommy Kale, um, who I've, I'm going on 20 years collaborating with and, and really kind of wanted to make space and time for. It's alive. I'm going to make a prediction. I think you're going to steal one of the best directing slots at the Oscars. That would be, I mean, <laughs> seriously, I'm watching this and I'm like, I'm just like, wow. I first, I will tell you this. I was at Ricardo's, a screening of Ricardo's on uh, Saturday night. Yes, Saturday night. And everyone, it was like this Oscar voters and everything, they were already buzzing about this. Wow. They were like, if Andrew doesn't win, shut the Oscars down. <laughs> they were, um, yeah, there was a heavy, heavy buzz after they saw it. Well, I, I mean, I'm in awe of Andrew's achievement, even more so because I was there on the, you know, in the front row for it. You know, I, I, I watched his confidence as a singer and a musician grow over the course of first just a year and a half of workshops. I workshopped this like I was putting up a musical on stage, you know, the first one being in a tiny office on 175th Street because I didn't want the theater world to catch a whiff of anything. I was like, we're not rehearsing at Ripley Greer. Like, <laughs> like we're going to do this uptown where no one is paying attention. And um, uh, sorry, my kids might burst in at any moment. Um, and so, um, like at every reading, he just sang a little more and was a little more confident, was a little more uh, sort of, you know, brave. And the by the time we got on set and we'd had two months of rehearsal because there's there's significant dance numbers in this, you know, the dancing in um, No More with that one sort of single take, they have to dance to that song and lip sync at 1.75 speed because I wanted it to feel like this dreamlike, slow-mo like Carrie's friend after the destruction in Carrie <laughs> as they kind of float through you know the way Brian De Palma slowed the stack had her walking backwards um and so um you know they have to dance this at, and, and lip sync to chipmunk speed uh and so there was a lot of pre-production in sort of sort of the, more, the bigger swings um but then Andrew just brought his own he, here's an interesting thing People think that actors are like great liars because they pretend to be other people, but actually the opposite is true. They're terrible liars. Andrew Garfield's a terrible liar. And the because he's done so much work to find Jonathan within himself that if like I suggest a piece of blocking and it doesn't feel right, he's like, ah. Oh. 
you know, and we'd be like, all right, what I, I really, it was like, it was like um, a Ouija board. Like, it was like, all right, well, what, what feels weird? And like, we'll, we'll figure it out because I know you've done so much work and respecting that and respecting like kind of always what would Jonathan Larson do and finding that together. And, and the work speaks for itself. Like he's electric up there. How did you select uh, Andrew and did he, was there, is there footage out there on Jonathan, which he could There's study? Tons There's tons of footage. There's some in our closing credits, which you see. That right. was some of the loop, right. loop that we, um, we watched and that, and that Andrew watched to prepare. Um, the, uh, I saw him in Angels in America uh, in a production at the National, the one that came into Broadway, but I, was, I saw it when I was out there. And you know, that's a lot of play. It's a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. You sit at the matinee, you eat dinner at the theater, you watch the second act. And if you read Prior Walter's part in a monotone for eight hours, it would be a feat of, of athletic endurance. Um, but Andrew did that whole thing with his chest cracked open. Um, and it was, you know, Prior is a 14 course meal that Tony Kushner has written. Like you get to play joy and ecstasy and rage. And, you know, I, I just always think of that final monologue, more life, I want more life. Um, and by the end of it, he was my Jonathan Larson because I was just like, that guy can do anything. Like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I can't believe the, the feat I'm seeing. And I knew I needed an actor who could play Jonathan's quietest moments and play to the rafters with a one-man band. Um, and he, he had all of it in that performance. In regards to the in, in the Heights film production team, did you take anyone else in addition to Alice? Um, to yeah, well, I took, I took Alice. Um, and it's funny, I sat down with Alice. I did an interview with Alice and she said to me, I lived in New York until 1990, till I was 10. My father was a playwright. And at 10, he gave up and we moved out West. And I was like, I think you have the job. <laughs> like it was such a personal lived experience of New York at that time. Uh, and she lived in an artist's home. I was just like, got it. Like you, we're gonna understand the colors we're working with, the VHS stock we're gonna be working with. Um, you know, we really wanted it to feel in conversation with that very specific time period, it's post-Koch, it's post like warriors and those NYC movies and like pre, you know, police all over Times Square cleaned up, you know, Disney Times Square. It's yeah. Like a very specific time. Um, and so uh, the, um, so, so yes, um, I stole my entire music team. Um, you know, I worked with Alex and Bill uh, and uh, Kurt Crowley. Um, Steve Gazicki was the music supervisor on Heights and we had an amazing experience with him and brought him with us to this. Um, and then the other one was Serendipitous, which was um, Andy Weisblum was, was my editor. He stayed on long past when we were supposed to have been working on this film because we got delayed by the pandemic. And he saw us, saw me through all the way through our first screening cut of the movie. And then, you know, that's Wes Anderson's guy. That's Darren Aronofsky's guy. Uh, and, you know, after the first screening, he was sort of like, Darren is starting the next one and I have to go. Um, and, you know, on totally amicable terms. And I was very lucky that Myron, who had cut in the Heights, um, was, had just finished cutting it. Um, and so Myron, you know, really located his life, you know, because Andy was living with me 
you know, tell, <laughs> Uncle Andy Weisbloom to my children. Um, and so the, the ask is not, will you edit my movie? The ask is, will you come live with me? That's exactly. Yeah. In the time of COVID is regular testing and potting together. Um, and so, you know, Myron tagged in and, and brought the movie home. And it was, and it came along, that could have been tough. And it actually came along at the perfect time when I needed a fresh set of eyes. Um, and and you know, I, I, one of my great joys from our opening night uh, here in New York was actually seeing Andy and Myron in the same place at the same time. It was it was really wonderful. One more question on Tick Tick Boom before I pivot to Encanto, yeah. and that is Sunday. You've got all the great. Broadway stars in that number. How did that come to be? You got B.B. Newworth, you have Philippa. It's very hard to talk about this without getting emotional. I will do my best. But I first, the first thing you need to know about that song is it's an homage to Sunday in the Park with George, the final number in act one, maybe the greatest end of act one ever, <laughs> um, where George Surratt, there's a frenzy of a cacophony on stage and he finally goes order and he freezes it. And he mm -hmm. assembles his masterpiece out of the characters we've been meeting uh, the whole time. And Jonathan wrote called Sunday, but he made it about the frenzy of his Sunday brunch, the most stressful moment of his given week. Um, and I, I just, I had the thought, Jonathan's only ever heard this singing it alone at a piano. And I'm in the position to give him a choir and he never got to hear it with a choir. So what is Jonathan Larson's dream choir? And so I began with his heroes and some of the folks you mentioned and some of the stars of the musicals we grew up watching. I, don't, I can't even say on Broadway because yeah. we couldn't afford it, but on great performances. Um, yeah. And, and yes, and all, all these folks. I don't know when this airs, but I think it airs after. Yes, it, yes. Uh, yes. So we can talk about this freely, but yes, yes. the Cheetahs and B.B. Newworth and, 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 and Bernadette Peters. Um, and then I wanted him to have an even bigger kind of galaxy brain moment because there's something prophetic there's a touch of the prophet about Jonathan. If you listen to the summary of Superbia, he's describing our dystopia perfectly well. Um, the, the super wealthy elite who are filming their lives for us to consume on our little devices. Um, and so I wanted to also kind of embrace those of us who have been inspired by Jonathan. So I have Beth Malone as Big Al from uh, Fun Home, which is I think one of the great musicals of the modern era. I have two of my Schuyler sisters uh, over here. I have his future collaborators in the form of Daphne, Adam Pascal and Wilson uh, as um, the Christmas bells are ringing homeless choir that he would immortalize in rent. And, um, and so um, I, I wanted sort of this giant galaxy brain moment where we, Jonathan makes his own dream choir. Uh, and then we finish with, I was inspired by, I was there the night um, Stephen Sondheim found out he was getting a theater named after him. It was his 90th birthday. Okay. Flanked by John Weidman and James Lapine as they told him and I watched him melt and if you look at that marquee it's his signature on the marquee the Stephen Sondheim theater and so you know Jonathan never got a marquee moment and so I made the final sort of gesture of it Sunday music and lyrics by and Jonathan Larson's signature uh on the marquee so that's the final Sondheim uh homage uh wow. in there and then the and then the like 
the, the wrapping paper on it is I, I hired Michael Starabin, who is the arranger of Sunday in the Park with George, to arrange that number and orchestrate that number. Um, and because uh, I'd worked with him once before, I had a wonderful time working with him on 21 Chump Street, a short musical I wrote for BAM. And, uh, and I said, Michael, I need your superpowers to, to <laughs> fill out Jonathan's dream choir. Um, now, Disney yes. first called you. How... Your Disney was during the height, like after Heights, when you first. Um, I I interviewed and got the Moana job um, in 20, uh, I want to say 2013, 2014. Yeah, you had to send a packet of songs. Is this correct? I sent a packet of songs. I sent some of the stuff I wrote for Neil Patrick Harris. I sent some Heights stuff. Um, all before yeah. Hamilton. This is all pre-Hamilton. Okay. And... And now, now you are the permanent Sherman brother going forward. <laughs> I actually, I, I think of myself as, as Bobby and Kristen's sort of like runty little brother. Um, <laughs> but, but, but either way, I'll take it. <laughs> and, 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 the, and when did you start writing this? I mean, this is a tremendous amount of songs. Yeah. And I got to think, you know, like, you know, are they, are they, did the songs come first before the entire script? No, it was always marbled through. You know, my, my one thing with Moana, which I, again, I had the most joyous experience on, but I was hired several years into the production and um, I had kind of this amazing shotgun marriage with Opataya Fawai and Mark Mancina and we, we built all the songs and it was easy. It could have been hard, but literally on the first day, Opataya brought in We Know The Way in his native language, I was like, let me put some English lyrics on that and this counter melody over here. Like we were just cooking from the moment we all got together. Um, and, um, and so, I, but there'd been several years of development and I just sort of said after that very positive experience, um, if you're doing a Latino themed anything, like, please, I'll sharpen pencils. I just want to be in the room um, and I want to be in on the ground floor um, so that I can help with the story. I was so inspired by the way Howard Ashman worked with the animation company when he brought in Disney's second golden age. He was like, here's how musicals work, guys. <laughs> and right. he really raised his hand for what musicals, what musical numbers can do and what musicals, how musical numbers can dilate time and tell story um, and work and amplify um, the, the visual medium of, of animation. And so um, I was with, with your first song in, in, the, in the movie, Hundred percent. An inspiration. By, yeah. Yeah. Inspired by Howard Ashman. Uh, Bell is like the perfect opening number, right? It's the six mm -hmm. sequence at the end of it. You know who Bell is. You know who she is to the town. You know who Gaston is. You know who her dad is. Uh, you know the lady who goes, "I need six eggs." Um, you know. You know Marie the baguette. Hurry up. Um, and before anyone had their powers, before you know, I, I sort of said early on, like. These characters' names will change, the powers will change, but let's figure out the structure by which we explain to the audience who is who and who does what. And then the delicious turn of our narrator is the only member of this family who does not have a magical gift, um, which I think is a great way to meet someone of like, well, what about you? Oh, no, no, I don't want to talk about me. Um, and so uh, I wrote that very early, um, but it was after we'd done our first research trip in 2018. We went down to Colombia in early 2018, and I left with a wealth of 
sort of musical inspiration that I, I couldn't wait to put into practice, um, beginning with just sort of falling in love with the accordion um, and how that is so um, emblematic of, of Colombian music and so front and center um, and writing just this big accordion centric um, Disney opening number whereby we meet Mirabelle and her whole family. Your first song that um, is being submitted for Oscars, your first written in Spanish, start to finish the first full one yeah and not not so much start to finish as it like it's like a full song there's a song mm -hmm. in in the heights uh called siempre that is entirely in spanish but with that you know heights is much more a mix of english and spanish and siempre was always designed to be like the bolero that rosario's listened to but you never hear the whole song you always hear the bridge and then it get the record player sticks on the word siempre. Um, so I'd only ever written a chorus and a bridge uh, to that. And for this moment in the film, which is sort of the foundational narrative story that um, kind of explains how Abuela has become the way she is, that sort of a, a very emotional backstory that we don't, has been hinted at, but we don't really know. It only made sense to write it in Spanish, to sort of like root it in the native language of Colombia. Um, I wanted to write a nature metaphor. Um, I wanted it to pass the campfire test. Um, you know, I think there's, you know, I, 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 I was pulling on the Spanish songs that I know that don't feel written. Cielito Lindo and, okay. uh, you know, um, Juan Tana feels, It feels like a real folklore song. Yeah, I wanted to feel it very is. I wanted to feel like you could hear a street musician singing this or you could hear this around a campfire. Like all you you could play with an orchestra, but it really like sounds best with like a guitarist. It feels like a standard. It feels from you know, our grandfather's time. Yeah, well thank you. That's, that's that was that was the goal and um, again, again, and this is where getting in early is, is so exciting because I was inspired by the visuals coming out of the animation department. You know, they created the miracle in the form of this candle wick flame that becomes a butterfly and that becomes a multitude of butterflies that kind of drives out uh, evil and, and creates this enchanted land. And I thought to go to the source of that miracle with it, it's actually all there in how caterpillars become butterflies. Like they literally go through a miracle to become what they are. And so the, the lyrics of the song are about two caterpillars who are in love and they're scared of letting each other go, but they have to let each other go because that's the only way the miracle is going to happen and that you have to allow. And it's a, it's a perfect metaphor for where this family is. They love each other, but they're holding on too tight and they're not letting them become the next version of themselves. Um, and so... Um, you know, it was careful work um, because the melody came pretty quickly, but my conversational Spanish wasn't sufficient to get the job done. And I've got my thesaurus with me, but I never want it to feel thesaurus-y. Um, <laughs> and words in Spanish sometimes have their own quality. Um, mm -hmm. that, you know, there's a reason the English translation doesn't translate the word oruguitas to caterpillars does not feel the same, <laughs> full stop. Um, but, you know, but I really kind of, I think I weighed every word much more carefully, um, you know, a word like desorientadas. And, and also, the, I should also say the metaphor itself 
provided words I couldn't wait to set to music. Crisalidas, uh, which is the Spanish word for chrysalis, is such a beautiful word that I'd never heard in a song before. Um, so again, like I was, once I hit upon the central metaphor of the tune, um, it was very exciting to kind of build the architecture that would make it feel effortless. You know, Sondheim says simple is the hardest thing. It's very hard work to write your way back to simple. Have you, have you met Sondheim? Have, I mean, like, have you sat down and, and, and spoke with him and gotten advice and things? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been lucky enough to, to, to I, you know, gotten advice from him. I, I, I countless songwriters. Yeah, I was going to say, when I was, I went to school in, New, I went to college in New Orleans at Loyola. And one of the guys who was studying to be a Jesuit really just wanted to write musicals and somehow got a sit down with him. Yeah. And he he's like a guy that he's he's a wealth of advice. It doesn't matter, you know, he's yeah. he's a really true mentor. And we all have Oscar Hammerstein to thank for that because Oscar Hammerstein took him in, was a father mm -hmm. figure to him and and sat him down and was like, and was a great teacher. And so he's always honored teachers and felt that as one of his sort of sacred duties as someone who, you know, gets to do this and is one of the best ever uh, to do it. But he's, I mean, he mentored me, mentored Jonathan Larson, I mean, countless uh, other folks. You, you'll find no shortage of people who have even just a kind handwritten letter from Sondheim or type yeah. signed letter from Sondheim because he's so generous with his time that way. The, how long was it to, to write all eight songs? Um, it was from 2018 till alarmingly four months ago. <laughs> like, till like, you know, I was working on that last song in the movie, like right up against, like, we have to animate this, Lynn, give us the song, um, probably April or May of this year. And then um, what is next for you? At least, tell me at least three things that are next for you, because I know you have at least three things where other people do not. <laughs> um, well, be I, I, I can tell you things I've, I've made that, that don't exist yet or <laughs> not on the world yet. There's, you know, I, I, amidst all this, even in early 2019, I got to write lyrics for new Alan Menken songs for the live action remake of The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid. Um, <laughs> and, um, but honestly, once Tick Tick is out, once Encanto is out, I am taking a long vacation with my wife. And I have a clear desk for next year. Are you going to direct film again? I would love to. Um, and I, I would like to direct musicals. And what was so rewarding um, about this story was it was so meaningful to me. So I would want to find, I, I would never want to direct something I wrote. Um, to me, that feels like a missed opportunity to collaborate with a writer. Um, and I love I loved collaborating as the writer with a director. And I love collaborating with Stephen Levinson on this, you know, it's just, I just think more voices is better. Um, and so um, there are there are a couple of musicals in the world that I would love to adapt uh, to film. I have some ideas for original uh, musicals that I would want to work on with other writers. And I have like, again, I'm waiting for my desk to really get empty and I want to see which idea kind of raises its hand and says, pick me, pick me. The, way, the same way Hamilton did and took over my life. One last question. Um, the live, a live uh, feature version of Hamilton. I know there was the filmed version of the stage version that went on Disney Plus, but a live kind of 
feature version, movie version. How far away is that? And does Disney make that? Did Disney, when Disney bought the Hamilton that they showed on Disney oh, they don't Plus, have any, any first refusal on that. Um, the honestly, like it's non-existent because even though I get a lot of questions about it. I'm right. thrilled with Tommy Kale's movie of Hamilton. It's the thing I spent six years making. Mm -hmm. I now know firsthand in several different ways how hard it is to nail the stage to screen adaptation and get it right. I feel pretty lucky on the other side of both Heights and Tick Tick Boom. Um, so I'm in no rush and I'm not gonna be the one to direct it. It would take some director having some insane vision, but I'm really happy with Tommy Kale's version and I'm happy it's out in the world. What you did with Oprah for Apple, I cried, 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 and made my wife watch it. That was beautiful. Oh, Everything, you. the letters that you got from the, the people that you moved. <laughs> you are that, you know, you're, you're wonderful. Do you want I to mean, hear one more, one more good thing that came out of that? Just because again, yeah. that was an afternoon in my life reading letters and sobbing um but the director of that series was rj cutler and right he, he directed jonathan larson himself in some of the early versions of tick tick boom as boho days really i did that at that shoot and i said oh then i owe you lunch and i got wow. him on what jonathan was like as a collaborator which was tough he was a tough collaborator very cool and i've interviewed rj before i did not know that he's got a whole early theater life and wow um, was, wow again serendipity that i was a part of that and and got more person out of it lynn manuel miranda i am honored thank you so much thank you this was to talk. thanks for listening to this episode of the crew call podcast on deadline i'm your host anthony delisandro and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. <laughs>